Psalm chapter 74. So we've been going through the Psalms. We've seen a lot of uh, similarities as we've gone through. This Psalm we're going to be looking at today is a Psalm of lament. And that's not a word that we use often. Uh, It means crying. It means sadness. It means uh, wailing. It's not really things we're comfortable doing in public, but uh, the Jewish people were very comfortable doing them. And so we see uh, this psalm, a psalm of lament. The occasion, most likely, is the fall of Jerusalem in 586. Um, And this is, God had warned for years, you've got to repent and turn to me. There's judgment coming. And finally, um, they, they never repented. And so judgment came upon Israel and Jerusalem in 586. Babylon came and conquered them. If you have ever been in a situation where evil is going completely unchecked, and you've just had to witness it, and you've cried out to God, then this is a psalm for you. So let's hear this from the Lord, Psalm 74. We'll be looking at the whole thing. It's uh, 23 verses. Uh, Give your attention to God's Word. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They're like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard 
for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise Your name. Arise, O God. Defend Your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at You all the day. Do not forget the clamor of Your foes, the uproar of those who rise against You, which goes up continually. This is God's Word. Let me pray. Lord, I feel the sadness, uh, the heart of this psalmist as he wrote, as he was inspired by your Holy Spirit, as he witnessed great evil happening in front of him and he cried out for you to do something. Lord, I pray as we come to this passage that you would soften our hearts and open our ears. Lord, would you speak to us by your word? Holy Spirit, push the truth deep into our bones, we need good news this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 2001 film, Behind Enemy Lines, um, maybe you've seen this film, it was one of my favorites growing up, Um, Owen Wilson plays Lieutenant Burnett, Chris Burnett, and he is a fighter pilot, Navy fighter pilot, and he's going on a reconnaissance mission behind enemy lines, and he is shot down. Unexpectedly, they, they lock on with a, with a missile and shoot him down. His, him and his co-pilot fortunately are able to survive. They eject and they land, but the enemy captures his co-pilot and kills him, executes him. He's able to make it to the extraction point, and he calls for backup. He says, I need to be, would you, I'm here, come get me, come help me. He wants the U.S. Navy to, to pull him out of the enemy territory. He gets on the, on the radio with his commander, and his commander says, we're not coming. You're, you're on your own. Whatever you have to do, run, hide, fight, whatever you have to do to survive and get out, do it, but you're on your own. And it's in that moment that this lieutenant, he realizes there's no backup. There's no cavalry coming. It's him versus the world. He's completely alone and abandoned. Maybe you have experienced a similar feeling. As you look out at our culture, you see a moral decline, you see a decay happening. Our government, Hollywood, encourages, promotes sexual perversion, abortion as freedom. Our kids are are often raised by the TV. The, The Western world seems to be headed in a very dark direction. And so we wonder, and I often wonder, has God abandoned us? Has God abandoned us? Has He forgotten us? Where is He? In the face of great evil, where is our God? And in our passage today, as we just read, the psalmist is likewise, he's witnessing this great evil right before his eyes. His city, his country, his religion, his family, 
His place of worship is being torn down by wicked men. And everything, everything about his circumstances screams one thing. God has forgotten you. And so as, as we look at our passage today, we're going we're to be diving into the heart of this psalm. And we're going to see how, how when it looks like God has abandoned us, can we trust him? In the darkest moments, how can we trust when everything looks like God has abandoned us? And you see three points there in the outline. First, don't minimize your situation. We see the psalmist, he lays out all the evil he is witnessing before God. He brings it all to the Lord. Look at verses, uh, starting in verse 3 there. He says, The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. He goes on in verse 5, They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. He's he's painting this picture of um, this enemy forces are coming in, and they're like loggers coming into a forest, and they're just destroying everything. They're desecrating the things that are set apart for holy use. But it doesn't stop there. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the name the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They say to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. You can almost hear an an evil laugh behind that one. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. These Babylonians, they're coming in, they're, they're destroying God's temple, and they like it. They're enjoying it. They mock God. They mock his name, and they mock his people. That's what it looks like. That's what the psalmist sees. But then he tells us not only what he sees, but what it feels like to see this evil. And what it feels like, in a word, is abandonment. Look at verse 1. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? He's saying, God, God, are you done with us? Have we, have we finally, have you finally had enough? Have you given us over fully to your enemies? He goes on to say, in verse 9, we do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. He's saying, we used to hear from you, God. We used to hear, we used to know your will. And now, you're silent. There's no evidence of God's presence at all. Hope is lost. And then finally, in verse 10, the the ultimate proof of God's abandonment is the fact that, that when the enemy mocks God, he is still silent. He says in verse 10, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? God always comes to defend His name, and yet here, God is silent as His name is spat on and dragged through the mud. And so the psalmist feels completely abandoned. 
Notice that there's, there's no false optimism. There's no pretending like things aren't that bad. He lays out his entire situation before God with all its gruesome details. So what do we learn from this? See, we, we love to minimize our problems. We love to minimize our problems. And when we do that, it's like, it's like we're trying to put a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. <clears throat> and, and I think we do this because as long as our problems are small, we're in control. We think we can solve them. We can fix them ourselves. But the psalm is teaching us another way. He teaches us the way of lament, the way of crying. the way of acknowledging how desperate our situation really is. The psalmist is also showing us what it looks like to know that we cannot fix our biggest problems. We need a hero. To say it another way, we are not okay. You are not okay. Our country is not okay. Our Our families are broken. They're not okay. Our world is not okay. The political strategies, the self-help gurus, they will not solve your biggest problems. We need help. We need God's help. And so the psalmist, he sees this and he cries out to the only one who can help. I once, uh, I had a friend, I knew a guy, I should say, I knew a guy, and he was a very unhealthy man. Um, and he, you know, bad diet, bad exercise, bad, all the health, all the different areas of health were not going well for him. And finally, he went to the doctor, and the doctor just told him straight up, he said, look, if you keep eating like this, if you keep living this lifestyle, you will die by the time you're 45. You're, just, you're not going to make it much longer. It's, it's almost like an episode of Supersize Me. It was, <clears throat> this is not going well. That one honest assessment, that one honest word, that honest assessment of his situation was enough to completely open his eyes to what was going on in his life and for him to realize, I've got to do something different. This is not working. He's a healthy, healthy guy now. Unlike him, we cannot turn our own lives around. We need help. But like him, we need an honest assessment. We need to stop minimizing our problems. We do ourselves no favors. Instead, cry out to God, God, my marriage is in shambles. I need help. Instead of saying, you know, I can, I can handle this pornography problem by myself, they know, God, this is a big problem. This is eating me alive. God, we are in a bad place financially. We need help. We need help. We also minimize our suffering because deep down, we think real Christians ought not to suffer. We think real Christians don't have problems. And this is simply just not true. This is the, the health and wealth, the prosperity gospel that's it's making 
uh, its way into our thinking. It's, it's a lie from Satan. God's people are guaranteed. It's not a maybe. It's not an if. It's a guarantee that you will suffer in this life. As a, as a um, citizen of heaven, you do not belong to this world, and so you will suffer in this world. In a word, trusting God. What does it look like to trust God when it feels like you have, you have been abandoned? It looks like not downplaying your situation. Let's move to point two. How can we trust God when it looks like he has abandoned us? Wait patiently. Well, how do we do that? I want to show you, as we look at this passage, two things that the psalmist is holding in tension. Uh, The first thing is, what he's witnessing is evil. It is wrong. The enemy is dragging God's name through the mud. God's people are being trampled upon, and he sees it, and he identifies it as wicked. Everything that he holds dear, everything the psalmist holds dear, is being completely destroyed. God's reputation, his country, his home, his religion, his family, all destroyed right before his eyes. And so he sees this, and on the one hand, he sees this is evil. I know that this is evil. This is wrong. Injustice is running unchecked in the land that God has promised to his people. On the other hand, if you look, uh, starting in verse 12, he switches gears. It says, yet God. He says, yet God, my king is from of old. He knows, on the one hand, this great evil is happening. On the other hand, God has the power to do something about it. And he's, he's trying to reconcile these two things, to make sense of these two things. <clears throat> so let's look at verses 12, 13, and 14. Um, there's kind of a weird quirk in here that I want to, this is almost an aside, but I think it's an important enough uh, just to teach you guys what's going on here with this Leviathan and the sea monster. Um, so I'll do my best to explain that. Uh, look at verse 12, starting in verse 12. Yet God, my king, is from of old working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So pause there. Um, Why is the psalmist talking about Leviathan and sea monsters? Um, Are we, how are we to understand this? Um, Does the Bible want us to believe in sea monsters? Well, uh, this is a reference to a popular pagan myth during that time. And in this myth, this is their creation myth of how the world came to be. In the mind of an ancient pagan, they had an understanding of how the world came to be. And in their understanding, Baal defeats a sea monster uh, with seven heads. And the sea monster and the sea represent in the mind of the pagan, chaos and disorder and death. And so Baal, the god that they worship, is, is given credit for um, subduing the sea, the, the chaos that is the world. And that's, that would have been something that the original audience would have immediately known. Oh, they're referencing um, this, this myth about Baal. And so Baal was credited uh, for conquering them, 
for, for subduing the sea and worshipped. He was worshipped by the pagans for um, his power over chaos and death. So does this mean that the psalmist is endorsing um, this? Well, no. He's not endorsing their creation myths. In fact, he's actually he's undermining them. What he's saying is, it's not Baal who has subdued chaos and death. It is, in fact, Yahweh. Our God is the one and the only one who is king over the forces of nature. And so, he, basically, the big point of that is to say, our God is king over everything. He goes on in verses 15, 16, and 17. He's continuing the same thought, speaking in a prayer to God. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have, you have a dominion over water, over day, over night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You, you put the stars in the sky. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. God is sovereign over everything. So again, on the one hand, he witnesses this great evil happening. And he can see it. It's undeniable. It's happening right before his eyes. On the other hand, he knows by faith that God is king of the universe. And so the question is, how, how can he reconcile these two things? How can these both be true at the same time? And so he cries out to God, how long? I know you can't let this go on forever, God, because you're just and you're in charge. So how long until you bring this to an end? He says in verse 10 and 11, how long is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. He, he's, he's saying, God, you see evil, and it's like you're standing there with your hands in your pockets and you're doing nothing about it. When, when will you act? When will you do something about this evil? Have you been here where this psalmist is? Seeing evil? clearly as it is, not minimizing it, seeing the full, the destructive power of it, and cried out to God, God, how long? How long will you let this go on? See, we live in a time, in a nation, in a world, it's not unique to our time, or our nation, we live in a world where God's name, His reputation is drug through the mud. That's another, another way of saying an evil world. He's scoffed at. And yet, we know that our God is king. And so we know that he has placed a time limit on evil. So when we see evil, when we see God's reputation spat on, when we see his people bullied, his church ransacked, his word declared irrelevant, we can join the psalmist and cry out, how long? Because the question is, it's not if justice will come, it is when will it come? When will it come? 
Israel experienced this in their own history. After this, about 70 years later, this nation that had destroyed Israel would be destroyed by another. God's justice had come. You know, um, as a kid playing in the neighborhood, I have, I have three brothers, and my oldest brother was very pro-justice. And what this meant was good. It was good for me some of the time, not good for me a lot of the time. But often, if there was another kid in the neighborhood, you know, picking on me, I remember just thinking like, look, I mean, you could be mean to me if you want, but my brother's coming soon, and it's just not going to go well for you when he comes. Um, and it's amazing. It's amazing how much suffering you can endure when you know justice is coming. Justice is coming. You might be strong now. You might be winning now. But not for long. Second Peter chapter 3 says, says something just like this. <clears throat> Second Peter 3 verses 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Christian, God always sees the suffering of his people. Whether it's small or large, he sees every time his people are spat on or mocked or beaten, he sees it. And so you can know that justice will be served. And you can join the psalmist and cry out, how long, how long, O God, And then we can wait. We can wake up and and trust God to deliver justice. And this brings us to point three. How can you trust God when when it looks like he's abandoned you? Hope boldly. And how do we hope boldly? This moment in history um, that we just read is one of the darkest moments in the history of God's people. It's one of the darkest moments. They, they have lost hope at this time. Um, everything is destroyed. By, by all intents and purposes, you, you look and you see, okay, God has abandoned these people. It's over for them. All hope is lost. Babylon has utterly destroyed them. They're in exile. And so the psalmist cries out to God, begging him to remember his promises, begging God to act. He says in verse 20, speaking to God, have regard for the covenant. Have regard for the covenant. He's saying, remember your promises, God. Remember. And then in verse 22, arise, O God, defend your cause. It's a dark moment in Israel's history, in the, in the history of God's people. Perhaps you, like the psalmist, find yourself in a dark moment. 
in a season filled with dashed hopes. What you thought life would be like has not come true. Evil seems to run rampant in your life or, or around you. And so we can understand the psalmist's lament. The darkness of this hour was very dark. And yet there was one day in history, in the history of God's people, that was darker than this, even than this. One day that was darker. It was the day, you might, you might know, it was the day following the crucifixion of Jesus. The day of the crucifixion of Jesus. And this was truly the darkest and most hopeless day in the history of humanity. And we don't think about this often because we live after the resurrection, but put yourself in the shoes of the disciples on that Saturday. They had left everything to follow Jesus. Their reputations are on the line, their jobs, they quit them. They've been laughed at, mocked for following this young rabbi. Everything is riding on Jesus. Their hopes for their own future as well as the future of Israel. But on that Friday, Jesus was dead. He was dead. He was in the grave, cold, lifeless, outside of Jerusalem. By all, everything, every circumstance screamed, God has abandoned you. This is it. That was it. That was your one chance. But evil has won. Not even the God-man in the flesh could conquer sin and death and the devil. He lost. He's dead. If, if there was ever a day in the history of God's people that was beyond saving, if there, if there was ever an hour too dark that we could never come back from it, it was this day. The disciples, they hid in fear. Everything that they believed so firmly seemed to be a lie. All of it. They doubted everything they had ever known. There was not a single shred of evidence that you could encourage them with. It was clear God had abandoned them. All their hopes died with Christ. But the night is darkest just before the dawn. Because Jesus would not stay dead. Jesus would not stay dead because that first Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. Death could not hold our Lord. You see, Satan sought to separate us from our God. He wanted to force God to abandon his people. But the scripture tells us that neither angels, nor demons, nor death, nor life could separate us from the love of Christ. In this psalm, the psalmist cries out, Arise, O God. God heard the cry of this psalmist, and he did rise. Jesus rose, and he is alive right now. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And soil 
from our earth sits on the throne of the universe. Jesus is on the throne of heaven. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, let me ask you a question. Is there any circumstance in your life, is there any evil that's found its way into your life that is darker and more hopeless than that day that Jesus died? Absolutely not. There is nothing darker or or more hopeless than the day that Jesus died. What this means is that I have good news. No matter how dark it may get, Christian, God has not abandoned you. God redeemed the death of His Son. There is nothing, there is no evil greater than that which He cannot redeem. He will not abandon you. He will not abandon those whom He has died to win. No matter what our circumstances say, no matter what, no matter how dark it gets, God hears the cry of His people. And he will answer. He has crossed, and he will cross mountains and valleys, heaven and earth, life and death, to save his people, to answer the cry of this psalmist. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, God's people go into the promised land, and he says to them, Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples before he left the earth, this is what he wants us to remember. Because it will look, it will look like God has abandoned us. It will. He knows that. And so he says, the very last thing Jesus said as he ascends into heaven, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I say to you, Christian, no matter how dark it has gotten, no matter how dark it may get, Christ has said that he will never abandon those whom he has died to win. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, my heart is heavy with the psalmist. It's true that there is great darkness in our world. But Lord, it is also true that you will not abandon us. You have not abandoned us. Lord, would you give us faith to believe this reality? Everything in our life sometimes screams the opposite. And so we pray, Lord, would you give us faith to believe that even now you watch over us, you are with us, you're present right here in this room by your Spirit. Lord, give us the eyes of faith that we might trust you even in the darkest hour. Lord, now as we we come to worship you, let us lift our voices 
to worship our hero who alone can save us. We need help with that, Lord. Help us to worship you. I pray this in Jesus' name.